Shabbat Shalom, Shabbat Shalom. Well, today we are going to be opening up with some modern-day commentary. And let me preface this, uh, what I'm about to show you, with the following. What you are about to hear, definitely from my opinion, is some of the most beautiful, the most insightful, some of the most powerful commentary on the Sabbath you're ever going to hear. And the ironic thing about it is, is this. It doesn't come to us from a source that you might expect. It actually comes to us from this source. And this is the complete and updated, this is the modern day catechism of the Catholic Church. And so one thing that you need to realize, and this is very important, is that, you know, to your devout Roman Catholics, our, our brothers and sisters in, in that wing of Christianity, uh, this is what's on their shelf today. This is what they carry around. This is what they go to. And really what it is, is it's just a summation of the doctrine. Why they do what they do, why they believe what they believe in, in church discipline. It's, it's a very powerful resource uh, in regard to understanding where our Christian brothers and sisters are coming from on, on this end of the uh, spectrum. And I always like to say it's kind of, uh, it's kind of their version of the Talmud for Judaism. Much smaller, of course. Uh, well, I want to read to you the commentary that they give on the Shabbat. They talk about it extensively, um, dealing with aspects and elements and characteristics of it. And uh, so we're going to look at this, and I want to break into, we'll go to Tractate 345. And this is what they say, the Shabbat, the end of the work of the six days... The sacred text says that on the seventh day, God finished his work, which he had done, that the heavens and earth were finished, and that God rested on this day and sanctified it and blessed it. These inspired words are rich in profitable instruction. First thing I want to point out, notice what they do, which is exactly what they should have done. If you're going to engage in the topic of the Sabbath, the first thing that should be done is you should go back to the beginning. You go back to the beginning of the Torah. You go back to the beginning of creation. They do this. But the second thing, did you notice what they said? The sacred text. Now, this is beautiful because they're identifying the Torah, the story that is recorded right at the beginning of Bereshit, as sacred. And they even go on and say at the very end, they're inspired words. So talk about putting all of this into context. It is sacred. It is divinely inspired. And then third, it is profitable. It is profitable for instruction. Talk about an incredible way to begin this introduction into the Sabbath. I couldn't do better. Moving on to the next. The, in creation, God laid a foundation and established laws that remain firm. Did you catch that? See, this is the beauty of it. At the very beginning, the Lord did something. He established his laws, i.e. Shabbat. And notice it says they remain firm, on which the believer can rely with confidence, for they are the sign and pledge of the unshakable faithfulness of God's covenant. And we know the Shabbat is a sign, right? We already know this. For his part, man must remain faithful to this foundation and respect the laws which the Creator has written into it. Now again, if I wanted to, I could not have articulated the point better. The institution of the Shabbat, this is something we must remain faithful to. It was, it, it was already established at the beginning. We must remain faithful to it. And they go on and say this. Creation was fashioned with the view to the Sabbath. Now think about this statement for a second. And what they're saying is that everything that happened, day one, two, three, four, five, six, man's created on the sixth day, it's all turning towards one specific moment to the Shabbat. Think of, think of creation like a song. And throughout the song, you get this melody and it's really, and you, you get this rhythm and it's this buildup. Okay? You go through the buildup. You go through the course and you go back to the rhythm. You go back to the course. It's this buildup until you get to the crescendo. Until you get to that moment. And so it's all pointing towards that moment. That's the moment you're waiting for. 
That's the reality of creation. Everything that was made, the animals, the birds, mankind, it was fashioned with a view to the Shabbat. And therefore, the worship and adoration of God. Isn't that interesting? Because this is something we already established, that Shabbat is all about worship. That is what it is about. That's why it's the, everything that was created was created with the view to the Shabbat. We get to that express time that God set aside for us to worship him. Very, very powerful principles that we're learning here. And it goes on to say this. Worship is inscribed in the order of creation. As the rule of St. Benedict says, and so they're going to quote St. Benedict, the rule, and they're going to apply this, keep in mind, this rule of St. Benedict to the Shabbat. Nothing should take precedence over the work of God. That is solemn worship. This indicates the right order of human concern. Isn't that interesting? Nothing is to inhibit you going forth and celebrating Shabbat. Nothing's to come in between. That should take precedence over anything. Absolutely amazing. And you think about, well, this is biblical because we go to Deuteronomy 5, and that's exactly what it says. It says, Shamar, or Shamar et Yom HaShabbat is the text. Protect, guard the Shabbat. This is what we're called to do. Moving on. The Shabbat is at the heart of Israel's law. I want you to ponder that statement. Here they are, the scholars, Catholicism. They're looking at the Tanakh. They're looking at Scripture. They're looking at creation. They're looking at all the evidence that they have. And this is what they determined. They determined that the Shabbat is at the heart of Israel's law. And they explain this. They go on. To keep the commandments is to correspond to the wisdom and the will of God as expressed in his work of creation. This is unbelievable. Essentially what we have here, we just witnessed the Catholic Church with deadly accuracy describe Shabbat. And all you need to do is to verify what we have read in this commentary is go to the scriptures. You will find it's absolutely true. Go back, look at creation. You will find that it is at the heart of Israel's law. Look at the wilderness experience you will find Shabbat is at the heart of Israel's laws. This is how he tested them to know whether they would keep his commandments or not. And just continue and get into the book of Numbers, find out how serious the Lord takes it. Or you could look at Exodus 31. That breach of the Shabbat results in death. You just look at Mount Sinai. The whole giving, the whole revelation for them. You must do this. There's a funny story I remember several years ago. It's one of those stories. I don't know if you guys ever have one of those moments where you hear a story, a funny story, and it never leaves you. You remember it. There's a funny story that I was reading uh, one of Asher Intrader's books, and he's a prolific Messianic Jew. He lives in Israel. And he's telling this story of his friend who's teaching a Talmudic study class, Okay. And within this audience, he had an elderly religious Jewish woman, an Orthodox Jew. And this gal is in there. And so this teacher is teaching this Talmudic class. Well, they come to the point in the Talmud, the rabbis start discussing the golden calf incident and what happened there. And in part of the discussion, they say, well, this is something that actually happened on the Sabbath. When he got to that part, this elderly religious Jewish woman cries out, no way. That could not have been. And the teacher thinks about it for a second. He's intrigued. And so he asks the question out of curiosity, why not? Why couldn't it have been a Shabbat? And her response was, well, they were Jews, weren't they? And you have to be Jewish to get the joke. Because obviously what what she was getting at is, is that, you know, idolatry, getting involved in the occult, well, that's understandable. But to break the Shabbat... Or to do it on the Shabbat, they would never do that. And so you think about it, I mean, that's filled with hilarity. But it proves an an incredible point. It is at the heart of their law. For this elderly Jewish Orthodox worshiper 
to come in and for her to go, no, no, that would never happen on the Shabbat because we're Jews. We wouldn't do that. We keep the Shabbat holy. It shows you in a humorous way how much it is at the core, that is at the foundation, is at the heart of Israel's law. You know, there's something so fundamental. There's something so powerful, so spiritual about the Shabbat. It can't be denied. The more you investigate it, the more you get into Scripture, you will find this to be true. So let's recap some of this incredible commentary that we've learned. Number one, we learned this. At the foundation of the world, God established laws that remain firm, okay? I.e. the Shabbat. He established it from creation. And guess what? Just as they mentioned in the commentary, this is something believers can rely upon. We can trust it. We can trust it. Secondly, worship was inscribed in the order of creation. It truly was. Creation, third, was fashioned with the view to the Sabbath. And last, the Sabbath is at the heart of Israel's laws. These are all vital principles for us to embrace when attempting to understand what the Shabbat is really about and what it means. Now, I want to take you back to the catechism. I want to show you what it has to say because up to this point, everything has been priceless. It has been beautiful. It has been great. Unfortunately, the commentary doesn't stop here. And it's very important for you to pick up on this because, again, we need to be able to communicate with our Catholic Christian friends, brothers and sisters, and not just them, but also others who aren't even part of Roman Catholicism. They're part of Protestantism. What we are about to embark on is a narrative you need to become very familiar with so you understand where they're coming from and what they're being taught. So this is what we learn. We go, go, we'll read, read Tractate 348. The Sabbath is at the heart of Israel's law to keep the commandments is to correspond to the wisdom and uh, the will of God as expressed in his work of creation and then they say this, the very end of describing the Shabbat. But for us, a new day has dawned, the day of Christ's resurrection. So you think about what just happened here. The catechism spends all this time articulating some of the most beautiful and biblically accurate commentary you'll ever get in regard to the Shabbat, only to come to but. There are no buts. There's no buts when you establish all this truth and it's fundamental and it's supported scripturally. There are no buts. You will not find buts in the New Testament in regard to the Shabbat. You will not find that a new day in this context has dawned and therefore we transfer because what is being said here is that a new day has dawned, meaning Sunday is now the new Sabbath. But you won't find that but anywhere to be found in the New Testament. With that said, I want to be clear on something. With the resurrection of Yeshua, a new day did dawn. I will tell you that. But it's not in the context of what's being expressed here. A new day dawned in the context where what the prophets spoke of, what the prophets said would come, that a Jewish Messiah would come to the earth and die for the sins of the world, which you are, the Psalms are filled with it. Psalm 22, Psalm 41, Psalm 69, Isaiah 53. The prophets prophesied that the, the, the Messianic, the, the, the Messiah would come and he would do this, and that wasn't it. But then they went on and prophesied, he will rise again. He will resurrect from the dead. And this is evidenced right in Amos 9.11. On that day, I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and repair its damages. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. The prophet said this would happen, that the Messiah, he would resurrect. And just so you know, this isn't just a private interpretation. This is not simply Messianic Judaism or Christianity's interpretation. The rabbis also argued this point. that stayed, They said... This is a messianic passage. This is about the Messiah. Let me offer some proof. Rabbi Naaman said to Rabbi Yitzhak, Have you heard when the son of the fallen one will come? And he said to him, Who is the son of the fallen one? 
He said to him, it is the Messiah. Do you call the Messiah the son of the fallen one? And he said to him, yes, for it is written, on that day I will raise up the tabernacle of David, the fallen one. It's a messianic passage. Everyone knows it, that this is the expectation of the Mashiach. So I'm getting at here, the resurrection of Yeshua, yes, it was prophesied of, and yes, it was fulfilled in him, at which point a new day did in fact dawn. When Yeshua rose from the dead, there was a dramatic paradigm shift. But it was a shift that was clearly, and listen to me, it was clearly defined in the scriptures. Do you understand? This paradigm shift, this new day that dawned, this is defined. You will not find in this definition anywhere where the Shabbat now is celebrated on Sunday or the Shabbat is abandoned or that now we call Sunday the Lord's. You don't find any of that. It's completely absent. You've got to go outside of Scripture to get that information. And so because we're talking about this, I just want to briefly take you and, and show you an example of how Scripture defines this dawning of a new day. Because they're very specific to pick up on this, especially the writer of Hebrews. And he says in chapter 7, verse 15, And it is yet far more evident, if in the likeness of Melchizedek, there arises another Cohen, who has come not according to the law of fleshly commandment. And what the writer is saying here is that, if you know the Torah, it specifies that you cannot be a Cohen unless you're a son of Aaron. So you can't go and offer sacrifice. You're not going to be able to go in the Holy of Holies unless you are a son of Aaron. Okay, and so here, the writer says, not according to the law of fleshly commandments, stating that this one, this particular priest that's coming on the scene, he's not from the tribe of Levi. We know he's from the tribe of Yehuda. He's from the tribe of Judah. And so, and then he goes to clarify what order. But according to the power of endless life, which is to say according to the order of Melchizedek. And you read Psalm 110, it makes it very, very clear that there was to be one that would arise and that he would be the Messiah. It's the very one that David, he calls Lord Adonai. He calls him in Psalm 110 this. And this figure, this character, this Mashiach ben David was to rise up according to the order of Melchizedek. Okay? This is what you call a new day dawning, right? Moving on uh, to chapter 8, verse 2. A minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected, and not man. And so in other words, this is a new day dawning because this particular Cohen, he will not serve in a temple made with man's hands. He will serve in the true temple that isn't made with hands. This is in Shemaim, in heaven. Moving on to verse 6. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. Now, here we go again, a new day dawning. Because now we move from the old covenant to the new covenant. From the old to the new. The resurrection of Yeshua implemented the new covenant. That covenant that Jeremiah prophesied of in Jeremiah 31, where he talks about where there would be an outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the context that now the Torah would be written on their hearts. Very, very powerful. And with the resurrection of Yeshua, yes, that new day, that had dawned. But again, it is clearly defined. It's right here. It's not hidden in both the old and confirmed in the new. Jumping one more passage in Hebrews, in chapter 9, verse 15. And for this reason, Yeshua is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. So I show you this so that you understand the biblical context of what it means for a new day to dawn at a biblical level. And frankly speaking, this is somewhat different than what the catechism is suggesting. I mean, you can read through the entire Bible and you won't find anywhere where the Bible specifies abandoning the Shabbat for a new day. The, the apostles don't use this terminology. So where does the catechism get it? How do they make this determination? Well, they actually preface what they, they actually tell us. They go on and this is what they say. 
in 2174, Yeshua rose from the dead on the first day of the week. Because it is the first day, the day of Christ's resurrection recalls the first creation. Now listen to this. Because it's the eighth day following the Shabbat. You want to talk about confusing. Well, they're just talking about it's the first day. And now they're saying, well, no, it's the eighth day. And I get what they're doing here. I mean, I get it. The eighth day represents infinity. I mean, it's a very powerful meaning. You got Simchat Torah, the eighth day, Shemni Azaret, the, the celebration. I, I get the whole concept uh, behind the eighth day. Uh, the problem I have with how they're attempting to use it is the usage can't be found in Scripture anywhere. You look at the Gospels, page through the Gospels. All four Gospels actually, ironically, talk about the fact that the apostles went to Mary and, and, and the women went to the tomb on the first day of the week. Every single one of them recorded on the first day of the week. Let me remind you, and we're, we're gonna, we'll talk about this more in depth and I'll show you the scripture in the coming weeks. But I want to be very clear on something. It's interesting to me that this terminology, that they're taking the eighth day and they're attempting to plop it on the first day, okay, to justify abandoning the Sabbath and creating a new one. You cannot find anywhere in the Gospels this terminology. It doesn't exist. Now, I want you to think this through for a second because this will make a lot of sense. As you go through, realize something that the Gospels were written looking hindsight, going backwards. They were not written contemporaneously. In other words, I'm taking notes exactly how I'm going through this. I'm going to write it down exactly how this happens. That's not how they were drafted. They're drafted looking back, recounting the entire story. And so it was long after. When you understand that, that's very, very powerful. Because if, in fact, you were to buy into this eighth day, which is really the first day, but now this signifies the eighth day, and now we have the right to keep a new Sabbath, if you were to follow that, it would be in here. The apostles had the opportunity. It's very simple. The apostles had the opportunity to structure exactly what they just said, but you won't find it anywhere. As they are recalling the story, it would make perfect sense for the apostles to go back and say, you know what? We need to let everyone know we went to there on the first day, but it's really the eighth day. You won't find it. And so that's just very interesting. Again, we'll probably circle back on that and we'll get into that. But So here's what their justification is uh, for doing this. And then they go on to say, it symbolizes the new creation ushered in by Mashiach's resurrection. For Christians, it has become the first of all days, the first of all feasts, the Lord's Day, Sunday. So simply put, it's very easy. Yeshua rose from the dead on the first day of the week. Therefore, the, the first day of the week is now the new Sabbath. And it's a very simple uh, conclusion. Now, they go on to explain this even further. We all gather on the day of the sun, for it is the first day after the Jewish Sabbath, but also the first day when God separated matter from darkness, made the world, and on this same day, Yeshua HaMashiach, our Savior, rose from the dead. Does that sound familiar at all? Because it's interesting. This is actually a direct quote. And this is very important because what I've been establishing over the, 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 the last couple of weeks, no matter how dry you think history is, it serves extremely valuable purpose in what we're seeking to do here through this Shabbat series. This is actually a direct quote from Justin Martyr. It's a direct quote. Let me show you Justin Martyr's quote. But Sunday is the day on which we all hold our common assembly because it is the first day on which God, having wrought a change in the darkness and matter, made the world and Yeshua HaMashiach, our Savior, on the same day rose from the dead. It's essentially verbatim of what we just read. Okay, so they're taking this from Justin Martyr. And I point this out because you need to understand how influential guys like Ignatius or whoever he was, guys like Justin Martyr, the impact, the mark that they have left on Christianity is undeniable. Extremely powerful. And this is the justification. It's interesting. It's not scripture. You think about what was just specified here. There's a lot of room in the New Testament to make this 
claim, but you cannot find it. This is frightening. I mean, this, this is frightening. When we get into this stuff, this is where it gets really, really scary. I want you to understand that the resurrection in no way precludes our responsibility to keep the Shabbat any more than it precludes us to keep uh, any other commandments, such as not taking the Lord's name in vain or honoring your mother and father. It doesn't preclude any of that. And what we're seeing here unfold in this commentary is a classic move of Hasatan. It's a classic move of the dragon. The devil loves to take scripture, right? And scriptural truth, such as the resurrection. Yeshua rose from the dead. That's not debatable. We all agree on that. That's a scriptural truth, right? And that's in scripture. It gets scary when he takes truths and attempts to utilize them as leverage to peddle his lies. But again, this is exactly what he does. How many times have I reminded you of that engagement between Satan and Yeshua? Satan took truths. He took scripture and attempted to get uh, Yeshua to sin. This was his attempt. And so he comes in, he manipulates the scriptures very, very craftily. Now, having said that, there's one, one more thing that I want to mention here in regard to what's on the screen right now that merits special attention. And that is this statement, we all gather on the day of the sun. I want to be very clear. You'll notice the spelling is not S-O-N as in the son of God. And I'm merely pointing this out because Sunday, historically, this was the day that was set aside for the worship of the pagan gods the pagan sun god, who is known as Mithras or Mithra today, or Sol Invictus, which these gods were at times independent and at times they were identified as one. I mean, this was the day that was set aside for them to venerate them. And just to uh, build upon this, this was something that even drew the attention of a professor from Oxford University who studying history, looking back at the reality of Christianity and, and what was going on in paganism. Listen to what he says, Gilbert Murray from Oxford. Mithraism had so much acceptance that it was able to impose on the Christian world its own Sunday in place of the Sabbath. Okay, so you look at his assessment here, we realize, guess what? There was a lot more going on in the Christian church when they decided to adopt Sunday as a new holy day, than just simply Yeshua resurrecting from the dead. There's more things going on here. There's more elements involved. The reality is, is that Christianity was beginning, as it's beginning to develop, you need to remember that it's developing under this umbrella of the Roman Empire. A Roman Empire that was immersed in Mithraism. It was immersed and we already covered Constantine and what the Edict of Milan was really about and how that it was for, to promote religious freedom, freedom and liberty for all religions. See, this is the environment that Christianity grew up in. And unfortunately, what we discover is that Mithraism actually had a serious impact on Christianity uh, to the point where Christianity stopped, starts adopting Mithraic practices. And further proof of this is, look at this. Mithraism had so much acceptance that it was able to impose on the Christian world its own Sunday in place of the Sabbath. He goes on and says this. It's son's birthday, 25th of December, as the birthday of Yeshua. So it wasn't just the Sabbath that the Christian church traded for Mithraic practices or celebrations. She now adopts a day, the 25th, of December, the birthday of Jesus. This is what they say it is. And I'm going to tell you something. Christian scholars will not hesitate for a moment to tell you that he wasn't born on December 25th. It's not a secret in, in, in Christianity realm, in the arena of the scholars. It's not a secret. They know he was born much earlier in the fall. I mean, this is, this is the determination. Someone needs to explain, well, how is it then that we are doing this. 
Why are we celebrating his virgin birth on December 25th? It's a little suspect, especially when you find out that Mithra was actually, this is the day he was venerated in his birth, who has said he was actually born of a virgin. The very same day. I mean, you need to understand, there's nowhere will you find this date anywhere. You will not find this date anywhere except in Mithraism. This is scary. And we could go on for next week. I don't want to get off rabbit trail. But I could talk about many, many other practices that the church has embraced, such as the Eucharist, which we know was a Mithraic practice. They were doing it. Justin Martyr acknowledges it. He's livid. He's upset. They're doing the same thing that they're doing, involved in transubstantiation and what have you. I mean, this is getting, this gets scary when you start to recognize this. The more you dig into history, the more you realize that early Christianity, unfortunately, she was infiltrated. Her walls were breached. She was becoming syncretistic. And you think about it, and just before you start saying, well, this is nuts, just look around you today. Look at the environment, which is very similar to what Constantine created, where all religious freedoms had the freedom to flourish, or all religions had the, had the ability to flourish. Now I ask you today, do you see any evidence of other religions infiltrating the church? And the answer to that is yes. There's no question about it, how we see it even happening this day to where you now have Chrislam, to where you have churches praying to Allah. You can't make that stuff up. You know, and I want you to think of it. Anytime the church in history, anytime you in your life, your own personal life, grab on to some pagan practice, Whatever idolatry is involved, know this. You will always sacrifice truth to do it, to embrace it. You will always sacrifice the truth. You will always sacrifice the commandment of the living God. Whether it's taking Passover and abandoning it for Ishtar, or whether it's removing the Passover meal and instituting the Eucharist, or whether it's removing Shabbat and embracing the day of the sun which ultimately, under Constantine, actually became the official day of rest. It became law. On the venerable day of the sun, let the magistrates and people residing in the cities rest and let all the workshops be closed. This was an edict that Constantine made in 321. When did the Edict of Milan happen? 313. We're eight years later. We're well into this growth of Christianity. And now he says, on the venerable day of the sun, let the magistrates. I want to be very clear on something. Notice he doesn't say, Constantine doesn't say, in the venerable day of the Lord's day. That's not the terminology he uses. He doesn't spell sun, S-O-N. You know, see, this gets into the component that we don't want to wrestle with. Whether or not Constantine was a devout Christian... You cannot, as a devout Christian, make this statement in the context it is made. On the venerable day of the sun, do you know that this is absolutely in a religious context? This statement? The day of the sun. This is when they celebrated Mithra. And so when we read this text that's on the screen, we all gather on the day of the sun. You know where they're drawing from now. You understand why sun is spelled S-U-N. This is scary. And here it is just staring at us, glaring us right off the pages. We all gather on the day of the sun. The implications are terrifying. Same context as Constantine. Moving on. Sunday is expressly distinguished from the Sabbath. So they don't want to make any bones about it. They're to be separate which it follows chronologically every week for Christians, its ceremonial observance replaces that of the Shabbat. It's totally replaced. Those who live in accordance to the old order of things, I mean, how many of us have heard that type of terminology 
in the church. Oh, that's old. That's done away with, right? Have come to a new hope, no longer keeping the Shabbat, but the Lord's day in which our life is blessed by him and by his death. Again, I ask you, does this sound familiar? Because we've already covered this. It's a direct quote from Ignatius in his letter to the Magnesians. Direct quote, verbatim. That is absolutely amazing. Notice how they're justifying. I point this out. You've got to pay attention. How they're justifying this change and not going to Scripture. They're going to Justin Martyr. They're going to Ignatius. We continue. This is what we read. The celebration of Sunday observes the moral commandment. Now listen to this. Inscribed by nature in the human heart. Read that carefully again. The celebration, the sun, the day of the sun, Sunday, observes the moral commandment, notice, inscribed by nature, not inscribed by the Ruach HaKodesh, not inscribed by Scripture, inscribed by nature into the human heart. You you read this carefully, what nature are they talking about? See, because there's only one nature that they could possibly be addressing humanistic nature. That's the only nature that is available here because scripture will not lend itself. The Holy Spirit will not lend itself. It is, it is absolutely, I marveled at this. I mean, this was the passage that made me go back and reread everything several times just to make sure it's like, am I reading this correct? Did they really say this? They printed this? I mean, you don't want to be that open. You don't want to print this. So they go on and say, to render to God an outward, visible, public, regular worship. So this Sunday, practicing, coming to worship explicitly for this day, is identified as regular worship, as a sign of his universal beneficence to all. In other words, when you go to keep Sunday and identify it as holy, abandoning the Shabbat, you are engaging and worship and you are showing the world. You're making a public declaration. It is visible. It is public. And you are offering them kindness. You, you just, there's a lot of drama here. I mean, this is a very dramatic statement. You read stuff like this and you're confronted with the issue and the reality we are at war. We are in a spiritual war of an epic magnitude. And it is time that we appreciate it. It is time we get engaged. It's time we get suited up. It's time we go to war. And we go and we defend the truth. We do it in love. Amen? One last one. The Shabbat, which represented... The, comp, uh, the completion of the first creation simply has been replaced by Sunday, which recalls a new, the new creation inaugurated by the resurrection of Mashiach. You know, I, I, I think about what has happened in Christianity. I think about what we, what we just read. You think about the various things that have happened. We've abandoned Passover. We've embraced Ishtar. Uh, we've abandoned Yom Kippur. We've abandoned the feast. We've abandoned the Shabbat. And we began to implement new things. Christmas, Ishtar, the Eucharist, many, many other things. I think of this and it it just drew me to a particular story in the Tanakh. It's a story of Jeroboam. Now, if you know who Jeroboam is, is he actually came on the scene with the fall of Solomon. And what I mean by the fall is when he got himself caught up in an indiscretion of having roughly a thousand wives and uh, the problem was not necessarily that he had a thousand wives which that's a problem on any level in my book (laughs) one is plenty praise the lord but his wives were pagans and they were causing him to sin and solomon literally was building altars for demons And he was offering on high places. And because of this, the Lord tore the kingdom away from him and divided it into two. And how he did it was like this. A southern kingdom, which is Judah, 
a northern kingdom, which is Israel. His son, because of the Lord's mercy, became king of Judah. He became king of the, of the southern kingdom. But the Lord raised up Jeroboam to take over for Israel. So Jeroboam is literally becomes king of Israel. And something that I want to preface before we get into this, the Lord promised Jeroboam. He promised him, you follow me. You keep my commandments and I will establish you forever. You will be the king of Israel. Okay? So Jeroboam, he takes his, his kingly seat for Israel. And then this is what we read in chapter 12, verse 26. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom may return to the house of David, which is to say Judah. If these people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn back to their Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and go back to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So I want you to understand something. Jeroboam doesn't want them to go back to Judah. He doesn't want it to happen. And Judah is what? It's Jerusalem. Now here's the problem. According to the Torah, there's only one place that you can go up to sacrifice, and that is Jerusalem, the place where the Lord had written his name. And the problem is, is that's within Judah. Jeroboam knows this. So he has an issue on his hands. He wants to prevent that. Well, now I ask you, what's the problem with him preventing that? It's commanded in the Torah. And what is driving Jeroboam right now? And this is just a side lesson. Fear. Fear is driving him. Fear of potentially losing his life. Fear of losing the kingdom. I want, I want you to understand something. If you think you're going to walk the walk, that narrow path, and confess Yeshua as Lord, and you think you're not going to be confronted with fear and confronted with compromise, you are deceived. This is the moment, the defining moment. Jeroboam is being defined right now. And he's not looking so good. Continuing on, verse 28. Therefore the king asked advice, make two calves of gold, and said to the people, it's too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. It's too hard. It's too big of a burden. He's telling his people, this is just interesting because you can see the mouth of the dragon speaking. It's too hard. It's too much of a burden. It was interesting. It was fascinating, actually. Miss Chandra was praying today in our, in our prayer group back there. I'm not going to get into the details, but she had mentioned that the world looks to us and they see what we do and what we embrace as a burden. Following the commandments of God, they see it as a burden. That's because Satan's telling them this. And that's exactly what Jeroboam is getting involved in. This is the mouthpiece. He becomes a mouthpiece for Hasatan. Here are your gods, O Israel, your Elohim, O Israel, which brought you up from the land of Egypt, and he set one up in Bethel and the other in Dan. Does that statement sound familiar? It's the exact same statement that Israel made with the golden calf. Here's your Elohim, O Israel, brought you up out of Egypt. Exact same statement. And now Jeroboam quotes that. See, here's where I'm going with this. This is the stuff you got to pick up on. When I hear people saying things, exact same things, that I know it was corrupted before, that's when the light bulb goes off for me. That the light bulb goes off and goes, something's wrong here. This is not in scripture. We're getting off. But this sure sounds good because now I don't have to burden myself with going all the way up to Jerusalem. Oh, you know, Jeroboam might have a point. And you look at Jeroboam, how he set up his kingdom. Look at how he did this. And I circled these in yellow. This is where he built the two altars. This is where he had the two golden calves. Notice down here in Bethel and up in Dan, literally at the very corners, the very edges of his garment. This was not accidental. This was strategic. Make no mistake, Satan is a brilliant strategist. He is brilliant. He knew exactly what he was doing. I mean, this is, this is war. What he is setting up here is for war. Preventing the people, making sure... Because Jerusalem's right here, making sure that they're not going to go. Because if you're in Israel and you're right here, and he tells you, well, it's too far to go up, and you're like, well, I live right here. It's easy to go to Jerusalem. No, I have Bethel. It's even closer. 
All you need to do is to go here. And if you, if you remember the art of spiritual warfare and what we talked about, Satan wants to make your life easy. He wants to bless you in his own way. Narrow is the path and difficult is the way that leads to life. So, moving on, we go to verse 30. Now this thing became a sin, for the people went to worship before the one as far as Dan. And he made shrines on the high places. Oh, and look at this. He made Kohanim from every class of people who were not of the sons of Levi. So here's the only problem. It wasn't allowed according to Scripture According to the Torah, the Lord mandated only sons of Levi could serve in the temple services. But now Jeroboam, he's kind of PC, isn't he? We don't, we don't want to discriminate here. And you could just see him like from the podium shouting to his, to, to his kingdom, to his people. People, there's no need to discriminate. If you have the heart to go do good and to serve at the altar, we're going to help you. We're going to make a way for you so that you can do this. And if that weren't enough, look at what happens next, going on to verse 32. And Jeroboam ordained a feast. You get it? He starts ordaining days as holy. See, this is, this is giving us the image of what Hasatan does. What did Paul say in Romans 15? He said, the things that were written before were written for our learning. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 10. The things that happened before happened as examples that we may not follow according to the same example of disobedience. And so when we read these stories, read them for today. This is today's news. And now I read the dragon has come and he has ordained his own holy day. He's ordaining his own feasts. On the 15th day of the eighth month, well, why is that interesting? Because on the seventh month, on the 15th day, is Sukkot. It's the Feast of Tabernacles. But now he's ordained the 15th day of the eighth month, the next month. Like, I want to ask preface that, like the feast that was in Judah. And offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did at Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he had made. And at Bethel he installed the priest of the high places which he had made. He made. So, Jeroboam, he starts ordaining his own feast, his own holy days. He starts implementing and rolling his own priests. All at the expense of truth. Truth had to be sacrificed for this to happen. And here's a simple point I want to make. When you read what Jeroboam does here, and then you look what the church has done to the feasts, these festivals, the holy day, Shabbat, implementation of foreign feasts. And you look at what Jeroboam's done, scary. This is when it gets extremely real. I want to close with the following regarding Jeroboam, Second Chronicles eleven fifteen. Then Jeroboam appointed for himself priests for the high places for the demons. And the calf idols which he made. And after the Levites left, those from all the tribes of Israel, such as set their heart to seek the Lord God of Israel, came to Jerusalem to sacrifice to the Lord God of their fathers. And in any words, this is powerful. There was a remnant. They did not go with the command of the king. They did not go with the status quo, with the majority. They rebelled to obey God, and they actually left and they obeyed him and went. There is always a remnant. And it's interesting, it's just so encouraging to see this, to see this reality that people said, I don't care what he says, I'm going to Yerushalayim. Thus said the Lord, and we will obey, and we will follow, no matter what the cost. And you look at the story, and it is a trumpet blast. And it's a trumpet blast calling out from Revelation 18. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins, lest you receive of her plagues. This is the call right now. The call is to come out. That's what we're doing here. 
This is part of what Corner Fringe Ministries is about. This is part of what you're signing up for. It's to pull people out of the fire. Because this is real. Amen? And with that, let's do our battle cry. Let's, let's rise. I hope my Bible holds up. Hero Israel, today you are on the verge of battle with your enemies. Do not let your heart faint. Do not be afraid and do not tremble or be terrified because of them. For the Lord your God, it is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. And we all say, today we will go to war. We will not fear. We will not faint. We will not give in to the flesh. And we will not give in to our enemies. Today we will stand and we will fight And we will conquer through the might of our Lord Yeshua. And we pray, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The worship team can come up. We're going to close in prayer. Abba, Father, we give you praise and glory. First and foremost, for your son, the Messiah, Yeshua, for the mercy and grace that has been shown to us when we don't deserve it. We are not worthy of such a priceless sacrifice, such an awesome sacrifice that gives life. And truly, a new day dawned, Father, when you rose Yeshua from the grave. A new day dawned for us in that there's, you promised Yeshua that you would pour out your spirit if you were to go away. And you did go away, Lord. And we do see that you have poured out your spirit. And Lord, we pray in this place, in this place, that you literally pour out the power of your Ruach HaKodesh, the compassion, the mercy, the wisdom, the understanding, the knowledge, the strength, boldness to go out and speak against evil, to stand against it. Or we pray for revival in this house. We are in desperate need of you, Lord Yeshua. We are in desperate need to cut the strings off of the world and all the idolatry, which is covetousness, according to Paul. Even coveting things of the world We are idolaters, and we know idolaters will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Lord Yeshua, I pray whatever the people are struggling with today, whatever sins they are harboring, known or unknown, Lord, I just pray that you cast light into darkness. Give us that opportunity, Lord. We seek to repent. We seek to move in repentance. We approach in humility, Lord, and faith. We confess you did rise from the grave and you do sit at the right hand of the Father, Lord Yeshua. And in you there is hope, there is salvation, there is forgiveness, there is joy. No matter what is going on in the world, we have hope in you. We thank you for being who you are, Lord. We thank you for showing us kindness. We thank you for blessing us with families and with friends. We just pray these things in the mighty name of Yeshua. Amen.